We need to move quickly in all of my lessons today uh, because there's much to cover. Uh, it's the intention to give uh, an overview of um, the covenant theology of the Scriptures throughout these lessons. And uh, we've seen yesterday that God decrees the end from the beginning. Where everything is headed is precisely where it was planned to go. All things lead from the beginning to the end, and there's a priority to the end that gives a unity to the plan that leads to the end. And so we said that it's like a Lego set or an Ikea piece of furniture where you see the finished product on the box. And so yesterday, we talked about the mystery of Christ as being that picture on the box. You look at the box and you say, okay, the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ, including the unification of Jews and Gentiles, that's the finished product. That's where everything's going. And you know that all the steps that lead there along the way are, are building and, and contributing to and leading towards that finished product, that decreed end. And so in this lesson and the subsequent lessons that I will be offering, uh, as well as the other speakers, we will begin to see in what way do the successive and progressive acts of God towards man through covenant, in what way do these things lead to that end? And in particular, in, in particular we're going to think in terms of kingdoms and covenants. That's what you see on your program or your notebook for this conference, kingdom and covenant. Covenants are guaranteed commitments. If you and I say, let's go to lunch tomorrow at noon, we have a commitment. We've committed to go to lunch, but we've not made a covenant because there's nothing guaranteeing that each of us will show up. But if we say, let's go to lunch tomorrow at noon, and if we don't, if you don't, we owe the other person $50, now we've made a covenant because there's something that's guaranteeing I'm going to fulfill my commitment or else I forfeit something. I suffer some consequence. So a covenant is based on commitments, I will or you will, but those commitments are guarded and guaranteed by some kind of, we sometimes use the word sanctions or a threat or some kind of curse uh, that will guarantee the participation of the parties. Covenants are guaranteed commitments. And God, uh, as we heard yesterday, is infinitely beyond all created things. He's infinitely beyond creatures. But God has made covenants with man where God commits himself to man and God also gives to man commitments for man to fulfill and through these covenants, God advances man beyond his created condition. Covenants are not natural arrangements. They're not part of the created constitution of man. Covenants are ways in which God advances man beyond his natural condition. As God gives man commitments he didn't previously have, as God promises things to man that he was not naturally uh, going to receive or enjoy, Covenants advance man, and God uses covenants by way of condescension to make available for man blessings he would not otherwise have received or experienced. 
And God uses covenants, therefore, one of the ways or one of the principal ways in which God uses covenants is to delegate dominion to man. In other words, to establish kingdoms and to govern kingdoms. Covenants are means by which God establishes kingdoms and governs those kingdoms, which means that covenants function like fundamental documents for a kingdom. Our country has a constitution, and our constitution is is the supreme law of the land that governs everyone in this country. Our constitution determines all kinds of things that are common to everyone in our country, and it, it functions as a foundational document. Well, covenants are very much the same. The covenant rules the kingdom. God rules the kingdom through the covenant. He establishes it. God uses covenant to establish kingdoms and to govern kingdoms. And throughout the Scriptures, throughout history, uh, God has established three kingdoms, three kingdoms, each with its own related covenants that establish and govern those kingdoms. And this session is focused on that first kingdom, or the first kingdom, the kingdom of creation. And it's called the kingdom of creation because that's the extent of the kingdom, the created world. And the covenants that relate to this kingdom likewise govern the extent of the created world. There are two, in particular, two covenants that God has used to establish the kingdom of creation and to govern the kingdom of creation, and these are the covenant of works and the Noahic covenant. In each of these covenants, all mankind is in view. So, for the duration of this lecture, uh, as we proceed, uh, we're going to look at the covenant of works and then the Noahic covenant under the heading of the kingdom of creation. And in each of these covenants, we're, we're thinking especially about the parties, the precepts, the promises, and the penalties. When you think of a given covenant, you usually want to try to identify those four things. Who are the parties? What are the precepts or the commands? What are the promises? And what are the penalties of the covenant? Let's begin with the covenant of works as we go rapidly through a lot of important material. Why do we believe the covenant of works? Well, because Reformed theology affirms the covenant of works. No, that's not why we affirm the covenant of works. We affirm the covenant of works because we believe the Scriptures reveal that God made a covenant with Adam. But in where do we see that? You won't read the word covenant in Genesis 1 or 2 or 3. So why do we say that the Scriptures show that God made a covenant with Adam? <clears throat> this comes from paying careful attention to the sequence of the events that follow after Adam's creation. We're going to see Adam created, and then a variety of very special things happen after that, and it is in those, the sequence of those special things that happen after Adam's creation that we see God making a covenant with Adam, the covenant that we call the covenant of works. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. In verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, 
we see that God has made Adam, he has created the man, body and soul. So Adam is a complete human being, he's a, he's a complete creature, he's finished. The man has been made. Now, remember, sequence, sequential events. After Adam has been made in Genesis 2, then God plants the Garden of Eden. So Eden follows after Adam's creation. And then, after Eden has been planted and prepared, then God places Adam in Eden, which means that Eden is not the place where Adam was created. Eden was made subsequent to Adam's creation, and then Adam is moved and placed in the Garden of Eden. Why would God do this? What, what is the purpose? Well, we begin to understand the purpose of God's placing Adam in Eden when we learn more about what Eden is. So notice in verse 9 that this is a special place. Eden is a special place. In verse 9, there's two, there are two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is there, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are special particular trees in this garden or this orchard, and we know that it's also an elevated location. We know it's elevated because water flows out or down from it. It's a place with precious stones, beautiful things. It's a beautiful and bountiful place, an orchard with water flowing out of it and beautiful stones with two very special trees. Eden is a special place. And in verse 15, we're told that Adam was placed there, he's moved there, for what purpose? To work it and keep it. But I hope you understand that this is not mere gardening. This is not mere gardening. In fact, as a boy growing up, I, I would never even believe that, that gardening could be Adam's uh, task as, a, as an unfallen creature because all my experience with gardening was pulling weeds and getting dirty, and it was just awful. No one could love gardening. It couldn't be the, it could not be Adam's actual task. I'm sorry if I've offended you. <laughs> no, actually, the, the fact is, the older you get, the more you appreciate just handling earth and things that grow and are beautiful. So, if you enjoy gardening, actually, I applaud you. And one of my favorite places in the world is the Huntington Library and gardens, and I enjoy those gardens very much. It's just the gardening part that I don't, that I don't really care for. Anyway, the point in, in verse 15 is that when Adam is placed there to work it and keep it, this is not just gardening the orchard. Compared with other scriptures that we, we don't really have time to consult at this moment, I'm more asserting than arguing, compared with other scriptures, we can say that Adam's task in Eden is to serve or minister and to guard. To work it is to serve or minister, and to keep it is to guard it. Adam is ministering and gardening in a… not gardening, guarding in a very special place that God has made for him. And these are actually the duties of a priest in a temple. This is a special, beautiful place of God's presence where God has placed two special trees and Adam is to minister in this special place and to guard it, 
to preserve its sanctity, to preserve its holiness. He must obey God's word, and he must guard God's word. Well, what is God's word for the Garden of Eden? Verses 16 and 17 tell us that in Eden, the law of God, the word of God, is this, a specific command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word of God that Adam must guard in the Garden of Eden is that we are not to eat. No one is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he is to minister in this orchard, in this garden, and to guard that word. God has spoken. Adam must keep and guard the word of God. We find that God not only commits Adam to this work, please notice that word, God commits him to do this. He commands Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God also threatens him. There is not only a precept, but also a penalty. If Adam fails to guard God's garden, and if he breaks God's law by eating from the forbidden tree, then he shall surely die. There is a penalty for violation of the precept. There is a tree from which Adam must not eat, and if he does, he shall surely die. This means that when Adam looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is a visible reminder to him. It is a visible word that is speaking to him, saying, I command you not to eat of this tree. It is also a visible reminder and a visible word to Adam, there is sure and certain death if you eat from this tree. So the tree is speaking. The tree is also God's word to Adam. It it makes visible, it speaks the precept, do not eat. It also makes visible and speaks the curse or the penalty, you shall surely die. Thinking of that, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a visible word of the law and is a visible word of of the covenant. Well, we're proving it's a covenant, but it's God's visible word to Adam. What about the other tree? What is the tree of life a visible word of? What does it speak? What does it communicate to Adam? Well, the tree of life is a visible word to Adam, not of precept and penalty, but of promise of life. The tree of life is a visible word to Adam that if he obeys, if he is faithful, he will surely live. The one tree says, if you disobey, you shall surely die. And the other tree, the tree of life, says, if you obey, you will surely live. Sure and certain death, sure and certain life are placed before Adam with these two trees that God has planted in a special garden that he made for Adam and in which he placed Adam to guard it and to keep it, to minister and to serve. Now, the life that the tree of life is, is making visible and promising to Adam is not merely a continuance in his present state, but rather it's a promise of a better life. It's a promise of an improvement, a betterment of Adam's state. How do we know this? Well, we know this because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, when God closes the garden against Adam and places angels there to guard it, guard its entrance, he says, lest Adam reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. There is an eternal life that this tree is promising, an eternal life that Adam is eventually banned from. 
And so the life that is promised to Adam by the tree of life is not just a continuing normal life, it's a better state in eternity, which means that he would be glorified and no longer able to fall. In his created state, he was innocent, he was holy, he was righteous, but he was able to fall from his innocence, able to fall from his righteousness. And if he is obedient to God, if he keeps God's law, then God will perfect him in the sense not of uh, no longer becoming, uh, not in the sense that he needs forgiveness, but he will be perfected in the sense that he would be so constituted that he would not be able to fall, which is a better state and an eternal life and a glory that is placed before him by the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a visible word from God to Adam that if he disobeys, he will die. And the tree of life is a visible word from God to Adam that if he obeys, he will live forever. Now, the rest of the scriptures, or it's better to say elsewhere in scripture to the very end in Revelation, the tree of life is consistently a symbol of everlasting heavenly life, of that perfect, eternal, glorious life that is promised to man. Unfortunately, however, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, through sin we fall short, we fail to arrive at the glory that was promised in the garden. So what we've seen in the sequence of God's dealings with Adam beyond his creation is that Adam is made and then Eden is made and then Adam is placed in Eden, a place with special trees which he must serve or minister in and which he must guard and protect. He is given specific laws that govern this place of Eden and govern the trees, and he must guard the holiness of this sanctuary by preserving the law of God, guarding the the law of God, and ensuring that it is kept. We see a precept, the command about the trees, a penalty, the threat of death, and a promise in the tree of life confirmed by comparison with Genesis 3 as well as the symbolism of the tree of life throughout the Scriptures. But what about the parties? Who is in view? Is Adam alone in this arrangement, and is Eden the full extent of the perspective? Well, as the sequence unfolds, immediately following the details that we just covered, Then, after these things, God creates Eve as a companion to Adam. So Eve is involved as a helper to Adam in the commission that he has been given for himself. Eve is his helper. And at this point, we have to turn to Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, verse 28 we see that God speaks to both Adam and Eve, which tells us that this takes place after what we've covered in Genesis 2. Eve was not present when God placed Adam in Eden and gave him the precept and the penalty related to the trees, but she is present in Genesis 1.28. And notice with me, the perspective of Genesis 1.28 is not the garden, The perspective is the world. Verse 28, and God blessed them, plural, and God said to them, plural, and then these these, um, commands are in the plural form, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is in view ahead of Adam and Eve is dominion over all things that are both plant and animal, flora and fauna. But we have to remember the sequence of events that preceded Genesis 1.28. If Adam obeys God, he receives eternal life by being confirmed in his innocence and righteousness such that he cannot fall from them. And if this is the case then Adam and Eve would be fruitful and multiply and fill the world with a holy and righteous offspring. As God dwells with man in Eden, so God would dwell with man in the entirety of creation. So this means that Adam's actions in the garden locally will affect all of his offspring, all mankind, and will determine whether the world is filled with a mortal fallen offspring or an immortal glorified offspring offspring. Therefore, in the vocabulary of covenant theology, Adam is what we would term a federal head, a federal head, that God has made a commitment with Adam and committed Adam to certain things on behalf of other people. God has, to, to jump to the conclusion, although we'll move there, God has covenanted with one person on behalf of of many others, a federal head. And Paul, of course, confirms this in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where he speaks of one man's disobedience leading to the condemnation of all, or in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. So to sum up what we've seen so far, we have parties, Adam and his offspring in him, Precepts, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Promises, eternal life, that confirmation of Adam's innocence such that he cannot fall from it. And penalties, on the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. What is this? That's the covenant of works. That is the covenant of works, a guaranteed commitment. God commits Adam to obedience in the garden and promises to him life if he obeys. God commits to give Adam that life. That's God's I will in the covenant of works. But God also threatens Adam. You cannot enjoy these blessings. You cannot receive the promise of the covenant while failing to fulfill its condition, while failing to perform its work. And so the doctrine of the covenant of works comes from paying close attention to the sequence of events subsequent to man's creation. Adam was not created in the covenant of works. The covenant of works is not uh, con-created. It's not part of Adam's original condition. It's something that God added and gave to Adam after his creation. And that's where we see it in the sequence of subsequent events as God deals with Adam. He makes him, he makes Eden. He places him in Eden. He gives him a precept and a penalty and a promise all on behalf of a people, his offspring, that is the world. And what is in view is the entirety and the extent of creation. Will the world be filled with a holy immortal seed or a wicked mortal seed? Will man's dominion bring glory to God in the earth or will it destroy and disorder what God has given to man? And we know, of course, that Adam fell. He heeded 
the, wife, the voice of his wife Eve, who had believed the serpent, and because of his sin, corruption and condemnation came to him and to all his offspring in body and soul. The body and the soul are corrupted and condemned. Death did come upon them, not immediately, but surely. On the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And death came upon Adam and Eve, surely. The timer began, your death approaches. And we know that this curse has reached to all men and in all places. If you can find a part of this world where the curse has not yet reached or does not reach, I would really like to know that because I'll move there now. (laughs) But we know that all men in all places are under the curse of the covenant of works. As Paul says, even creation itself has been subject to futility. The whole world is cursed by the covenant of works. And the curses of the covenant are explained more fully in Genesis 3. We know the curse is on the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But in Genesis 3, we find an additional expansion of these curses. And it's interesting to note that in Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19, the curses, they correlate, they correspond to the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, verses 28 to 30. What I mean by that is this. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to enjoy the bounty of plants and animals. Be fruitful and multiply. Have many babies and enjoy the plants and animals of this world. A fruitful offspring and a fruitful world full of life. But the curse on the woman is precisely her multiplication and bearing of children. Her childbearing will be a cause of death mixed with life. Yes, it will give Yes, birth will be a process by which life is is multiplied and life is continued, but it will be dangerous. Many women will die in childbirth and many children will die. Death is mixed with life in childbearing. It will be painful and dangerous. And similarly, Adam's labor, have dominion over all the earth, plants and animals, he's told that his labor is going to be a constant struggle between death and life. The earth will resist his work. And the ground will not yield food easily. He has to sweat if he wants to eat. And if he stops sweating, he stops eating. And if he stops eating, he dies. So you have to sweat every day until you die. Because if you stop sweating, you stop eating, and you just die faster. There's a mortal gravity that's pulling him down to the grave, and the only way to resist it is to work hard to have bread to eat every day. But the ground will resist him, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So the curses of the covenant of works specifically curse what Adam and Eve were called to do, be fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion. But now there is death mixed in with the life and the the fruitfulness and the multiplication. And now there is certain death if in your, in your uh, exercise of dominion, you do not sweat. You want to be lazy? You're going to die. You stop sweating, you stop eating. The kingdom of creation, therefore, is a kingdom under curse. It is a kingdom suffering God's judgment for Adam's disobedience and for our own additional wickedness that mankind adds The covenant of works governs the kingdom of creation, the whole world. And the covenant of works is 
permanently in a cursed state. It continues on, not with its promises and its precepts about the trees in the garden, but rather it continues on simply in a cursed state. Men are born cursed and the world is cursed. Fruitfulness and multiplication are still cursed and the ground is still cursed. No one can escape the corruption or the condemnation that the covenant of works imposes on Adam's offspring. Now, Genesis 3 tells us that though no one can escape it, God did provide an escape, a way for the curse to be broken and undone, but that's the subject of the next lesson, and so we'll skip over it at this point and move on to the Noahic covenant to see what God did to preserve life in this fallen world and this cursed kingdom. The covenant of works has all creation in view, and so does the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with mankind through Noah. This is another covenant through which God governs the kingdom of creation and its members, all mankind. This is not replacing the covenant of works. This is uh, governing the kingdom of creation alongside the covenant of works. As man multiplied, so did man's sinfulness, and God permitted man's sin to increase to such an extent that it seemed that those who served the Lord and believed in His name and His promises would be destroyed. And in that context of the proliferation of man's wickedness, God sent a flood as a judgment upon mankind. And when we read Moses' account of the flood, in particular the completion of the flood, Moses, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is very intentionally echoing Genesis 1 and the creation of the world, such that the emergence of the dry land out of the waters of the flood is presented as a a kind of new creation. As the wind is over the great deep and the dry land emerges from the waters and birds again fill the heavens and man and animals again fill the earth and vegetation grows, it is an echoed new creation. And Noah, like Adam, receives a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 9 with me, please. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Echoing Genesis 1, repeating Genesis 1. But it's different. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Notice that this is not a reset. This is not a redo. This is life in a fallen, cursed world. A similar commission is given, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, but it's a cursed earth. God is a master workman, and the steps in his plan are not divergent. Through the covenant that God made with Noah, man is not returning to paradise, nor is he receiving a new one. Man does not return to innocence. He doesn't obtain new righteousness. His heart is not changed by the flood. His heart is not changed by the Noahic covenant. The flood 
meant that there are less sinners on the earth, but not less sin in man. So whereas the commission in Genesis 1 has a largely positive significance, dominion is a good thing, an idea of building and mastery. This commission in Genesis 9 brings with it the idea that the way through which or the way by which man will achieve mastery over the animal kingdoms is through fear and force, not so much wisdom and excellence, which doesn't mean we should intentionally be fearsome and forceful, but if the animals resist, you have to overcome the animals. The same kind of language, the fear and dread of you shall be upon them, is the language used of Israel entering into Canaan that the Canaanite nations will be terrified as Israel draws near. The fear and dread of you shall be put upon them or shall be in them. So also the animals are not so happy that we have dominion. The animals are oftentimes terrified. This, by, by this I mean Genesis 9, is a cultural mandate as part of a covenant ruling a kingdom, and it applies to all mankind equally, Everyone, in all places and in all countries, must take this very seriously because it is God's covenant with them, and it is God's covenant with all peoples in any nation as God rules His kingdoms through His covenants. All men belong to the kingdom of creation, and all men are accountable to this covenant. You and I are part of mankind with whom God made this covenant through Noah. And this commission applies to us today as it did in the days of Noah, because federal headship reaches to all generations as long as the covenant remains active. This is very important for a number of reasons that we don't have time to expand on fully, but in in our day there are many people who are looking to Genesis 1 and its dominion mandate and trying to press people to follow the Genesis 1 dominion mandate. It doesn't apply. We need to obey the Genesis 9 dominion mandate, which is distinct. They, are, they overlap. They're not entirely different, but they are distinct. We are not filling the world with a holy seed, with a dominion of, of holiness and righteousness. The Noahic covenant is all men, fallen man, filling the earth, but yet under God, under His rule, under His reign, under the Noahic covenant in the kingdom of creation. So it is true that we are called to raise up and establish structured and successful societies, a cultural mandate as we pursue cultural achievement and growth. We're not called to just sit in the dirt and say, oh, life's so hard and things are so difficult and the world is cursed and I have to sweat to eat. No, we're called to work. Even if the ground resists us, even if we have to sweat in order to eat something, God has commanded us and called us to work as men and women to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and to exercise dominion. But it's different from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, if Adam and Eve were faithful, they would extend Eden as a holy place with a holy seed to the whole world. Their cultural progress and family multiplication would have yielded a holy and righteous offspring that consummates the world into a paradise where God's servants are all mankind and they serve Him and enjoy His blessing and presence. That's not what will happen 
if we are faithful to Genesis 9. It is not so for Noah. It is not so for us. Our cultural achievements, as impressive and enjoyable as they may be by God's common grace, they're not building paradise on earth. So this covenant does not offer eternal life of any kind. But it did serve, and indeed serves, the purpose of promoting the fulfillment of the greater promise of salvation, which at that time had not yet been fulfilled. The Noahic covenant was serving God's greater purposes by stabilizing a fallen world so that God's plans can play out in this stabilized stage. Redemption can take place in a world where the Noahic covenant is keeping things regular and normal. The seed of Eve can be born in this world that God has stabilized through the Noahic covenant. Now, if we are commanded in the Noahic covenant to be fruitful and multiply, increase life, what is opposite to that? Decreasing life. Murder. Murder is the the direct contrary to what God has commanded in the Noahic covenant. And so we find in the Noahic covenant that it also has a penalty. Its parties are Noah and all his offspring and all flesh throughout their generations forever. Its precept is to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion in a fallen world. And its penalty is that if you destroy life, which is contrary to the command to increase life, then your life will not be spared. Genesis 9, 5 through 7. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Notice with me that Verse 7 repeats the command to be fruitful and multiply from verses 1 and 2. So, sandwiched between the, the command to be fruitful and multiply repeated twice, you have this penalty, and if you kill people, which is the opposite to my command to be fruitful and multiply, your life will be taken away. You cannot enjoy the blessings of my world that I've given to all mankind and all flesh You cannot enjoy the blessings of this covenant and this world if you are busy doing what is opposite to it. If you are a murderer who is taking life, your life will be forfeited. This is the law of the Noahic covenant, and it belongs to the kingdom of creation. All men in all places are held by this command and this threat. All men should be fruitful and multiply. All men who murder should be put to death in all nations. Should we have capital punishment? Should we have a death penalty? You don't get to to question. It's not up to you. The law is already made in the Noahic covenant, given to all mankind in governing the kingdom of creation. Those who shed man's blood, by man shall their blood be shed. Mankind has power, derived from God himself, through covenant in his kingdom to punish those who harm society, in this case, by murder. In the Noahic covenant, therefore, we have two basic responsibilities, preserve life and preserve the family. Preserve life and preserve the family. If mankind is to be fruitful and multiply, and if in Genesis 1, God stipulated that this takes place through 
a man and, and, a, and a woman joining together as husband and wife and then becoming one flesh, and in becoming one flesh, then they become fruitful and multiply. Therefore, the, the family or the marriage precedes the multiplication, and if we are not to murder, but we are rather to put murderers to death, then we are to preserve life and preserve the family, which is the instrument through which life is multiplied. Preserve life, preserve the family is the basic constitutional covenantal responsibility of all societies. And it is a terrible rebellion and wickedness, of course, in our country and many others that marriage is not just dishonored but destroyed and that not only is murder rampant but, of course, abortion is one of the most high-handed rebellions against God's law. If we are to be fruitful and multiply through childbearing and murder is the opposite of that, how much more the murder of children? It is one of the the heights of human wickedness. And then to protect it by law and to call it a right and to celebrate it when we saw in recent years in Argentina and in Ireland, uh, women especially in the streets dancing and celebrating their right to abortion. Oh, it's, it's the height of wickedness. As a society, we must promote and preserve and protect the life of individuals and the life of the family. These are our most basic commitments. Now, we've seen... The, the parties, Noah and his offspring and all flesh throughout their generations forever, the precept, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, exercise dominion, the penalty, if you take life, your life will be taken. What is the promise of the Noahic covenant? Well, it's a promise of preservation, which we find in verses 8 through 17 of Genesis 9. This is God's I will, God's commitment in the covenant God says in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you. Here are the parties. Noah, the federal head, in repre- uh, representing his offspring and all flesh. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is promising the preservation of life, the preservation of the world, and he gives a sign, excuse me, a sign in verse 12 as a visible reminder, a visible word of the covenant to mankind. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. We see that God says it will be a reminder to him, which is an anthropomorphism. It's an accommodated way of speaking to us that God will, as, as surely as we constantly see the rainbow, so constant are the promises of God to us in this covenant. God says in verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And notice, especially in verse 12, for all future generations, so long as the earth remains, God said in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, 
Through the, throughout the generations of mankind, Noah being, being the federal head, this covenant persists. This covenant continues. It rules and reigns over the kingdom of creation. On our part, we have our commitments. On God's part, his commitment is to preserve the world. As he said in chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God will fulfill his promise. God will keep his word. He will not flood the earth again. He may judge peoples. He may put them to death as we put people to death, but the sun will shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. The waters will fall. The rain will will water the earth, and God will keep the earth preserved as long as the earth remains. And as we said previously, the reason for this preservation is to subserve God's larger purposes of bringing about the offspring of Eve who will undo the curse. Brothers and sisters, we live under this covenant and we live in this kingdom, not because we're Christians, but because we're creatures, because we are men and women, the offspring of Noah, the offspring of Adam. Excuse me, yes, did I say that right? (laughs) The offspring of Adam and Noah. We are citizens of the kingdom of creation and we live under the Noahic covenant and that should be a comfort to us to know that God has promised to preserve and stabilize it until he has completed all his purposes in Jesus Christ and brought all things to consummation in him. So don't be afraid. Trust in God's covenant promise which he makes visible to you by the rainbow. In conclusion, if we sum up and combine the things that we've learned today, we'll see that the kingdom of creation in which we all live is a common cursed kingdom of common grace. A common cursed kingdom of common grace. The entirety of the kingdom of creation is cursed by the covenant of works. Everyone lives in a fallen world and is born with a fallen nature. But everyone is given God's common grace of preservation, patience, time, and goodness, as as was mentioned yesterday by my father in his lesson, that when Paul spoke to the Gentiles, he reminded them of God's goodness. When they eat good food, when they have sunshine and rain, that's God's goodness and kindness. That's God's grace to all mankind. So we call it a common grace. It is undeserved. It is purely God's kindness and goodness to man. And the Noahic covenant promises a a cyclical, repetitive, continued, preserved world of seed time and harvest, of winter and summer, heat and cold, day and night, seasons. This is a blessing for everyone, Christian or not. We are citizens with our fellow neighbors of the kingdom of creation, and we live under the Noahic covenant with them. We have been freed from the covenant of works, but we live in the world cursed by the covenant of works. And we live under the Noahic covenant, and we must abide by its laws. Noah's covenant echoes Eden, but does not repeat Eden. And we need to be faithful 
as we obey it. The Noahic covenant and the covenant of works are not at odds. They're not competing. They don't, one does not replace the other. They simply have different purposes. The covenant of works curses and condemns. The Noahic covenant dictates how to live in that fallen world. And they are both active covenants by which God governs mankind and delegates dominion to mankind. If you want to know how to live in this world, read Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, a life of common curses that apply to everyone, enigmas that apply to everyone, things that just don't work right no matter where you go, a broken system. Hard work doesn't always pay off. Sometimes it does, but everyone dies. Everyone is cursed. Everyone lives through the difficulties of success and failure, unpredictable to us. Our obligation, as the preacher concludes, is to fear God, to acknowledge the king of our common covenant kingdom, and to keep his commandments, trusting in his greater and wonderful purposes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the covenants that you have made with us in Adam and in Noah. These are good covenants that offer blessings to man, that give us good laws. And when we think of curses, the badness is not in the covenant but in us. The covenant of works was good. The Noahic covenant is good. We thank you. We ask you that you would help us to be faithful citizens of this common kingdom that you would help us to be the best citizens of our country, the best neighbors in our local places. We pray that you would help us to be diligent in being fruitful and multiplying, in exercising dominion. We pray that you would give us wisdom to live under the sun, that we would fear you and keep your commandments. And we thank you that you have given us so much more through a better covenant and a better kingdom in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to be faithful citizens of both kingdoms, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.